If you will find your Bible and find Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start a new series today on the Sermon on the Mount. My name's Andy, by the way, if you're a guest with us this morning, thanks for coming. Glad that you're here to worship with us together. And we are starting a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and so I, I was thinking about how to set this series up, and, and I, uh, I started Google searching greatest speeches in history. Uh, and I just started reading through some of the greatest speeches in, that I've ever been given in human history. And so I just wanted to share a few snippets, sound bites with you from some that have been uh, very uh, influential in our nation's history, some of the greatest speeches in American history. And you know, these speeches are great because they are speeches that changed the world, or at least changed a people group. That They are speeches that change the course of history in some way. And so let me just share these with you and see if you recognize some of these uh, sound bites. This is preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. Nor need we shrink from honestly facing conditions in our country today. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Anybody know who gave that speech? Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 1933. What about this one? I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Martin Luther King Jr. How about this? Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Lincoln, Gettysburg Address. And this last one isn't really a speech. It, it's more of a, it's a, it's a proclamation, a declaration. It was written down, uh, not necessarily given as a speech, but it's moving nonetheless. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Anybody know what that's from? Yep, Declaration of Independence, right? Good, that was good, yeah. So, uh, great speeches. Jesus also has a great speech. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is what we're starting out today, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's actually the longest block of teaching that we have, the longest single block of teaching that we have from Jesus in the entire New Testament. Um, one biblical commentary that I was reading about the Sermon on the Mount this week said, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. And that was challenging to me. Here, here we have the, the greatest uh, message, the longest block of teaching from Jesus in the New Testament that we have. And yet it's ironic that unbelievers often hold the Sermon on the Mount in higher regard than Christians do. Um, if you Google search the greatest speeches in history, which I did this week, um, the Sermon on the Mount shows up on virtually every single list. It is widely regarded by, uh, by everybody, historians and everybody, as one of the greatest speeches ever delivered in human history. Uh, Dr. James T. Fisher was a non-Christian psychologist, and here's what he said about the Sermon on the Mount. If you were to take the sum total 
of all the authoritative articles ever written by the most qualified of psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental health. If you were to combine them, refine them, and cleave out the excess verbiage, and if you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed by the most capable of living poets, you would have an awkward and incomplete summary of the Sermon on the Mount. That was from a psychologist who's not a believer, yet he recognizes the value and the truth and the validity of the Sermon on the Mount. Unbelievers often hold this message in higher regard than we do. As many Christians today downplay, dismiss, or even ignore the Sermon on the Mount. For many of us, we just don't take it seriously. It's so familiar, and familiarity breeds contempt. So we, we take little sound bites from it and put it on coffee cups and calendars and sell it as Jesus junk, but it doesn't actually impact our lives. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, that sounds great, looks good on a coffee cup, but does anybody actually value meekness? No. Meekness is weakness in our society and all too often in our churches. Uh, some Christians are really uncomfortable with the Sermon on the Mount. Just struggle with what Jesus teaches. It, it's too extreme. He's too radical. It's too exclusive, right? So, so they want to pick and choose the parts that they want. They want to cross out the things they don't like and circle the things they do. Matthew 5.32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Is that really in the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah. Let's just cross that one out. We don't like that. Matthew 5.39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Cross that off. Don't like that. Turn the other cheek. No, you smack me in the face, I'm going to punch you in your face, right? Maybe, maybe take a baseball bat, like respond with greater force. I'm going to stop this. You can't walk all over me. We don't like those parts. We want to cross out the bits we don't like. We want to circle the things we do. Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. Oh, I like that one. I'm going to, I'm going to post that on, on Facebook. I'm going to put that on my bumper sticker. You can't judge me. You can't tell me how to live my life. Judge not lest you be not judged. I like that part. Circle it, highlight it, underline it. Matthew 7, 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Oh, that's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Makes for a great Instagram post. Great, like that part. But the problem is the Sermon on the Mount is not a buffet. You don't come to this message and, and take what you like and leave what you don't. It's not a dressing room. You're not in the back trying on different outfits until you find the one you like and leave the rest of the clothes on the rack. With Jesus, you're either all in or you're all out. There's no, there's no sitting on the fence. You can't take some of Jesus' teaching and leave the rest of it. No, you have to take it as a whole or reject it as a whole. But many Christians just want to pick and choose what they like from the Sermon on the Mount. Some Christians dismiss the Sermon on the Mount on the Mount as the impossible ideal, right? Jesus didn't teach this Sermon on the Mount as something to actually be obeyed because we can't obey it. It's impossible to live up to God's standards. So the, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount, the whole thing that Jesus was trying to accomplish was to show us the disgusting depth of our depravity 
He was saying, look, this is God's ideal standard, and it's impossible for you to ever achieve it. I don't, I'm not saying that you should actually live this way. I'm just showing you how much of a disgusting sinner you are so that you can fall upon the mercy of God and turn to him and cry out for grace, and you need a Savior. And that sounds really gospel-y. And there's a measure of truth to that. You can't really do what the Sermon on the Mount's calling you to do or be who it's calling you to be without the, the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, without turning to Christ. But it's not really meant to be the impossible ideal. One New Testament scholar, Dr. Jonathan Pennington, said, This view, this impossible ideal, contributes to the neglect, the evasion, or at least the confusion regarding the Sermon on the Mount in much of the Protestant tradition. Because we have this idea that it's the impossible ideal. Oh, well, I can't ever do it anyway. It wasn't ever meant to be obeyed, so we just ignore it. The, the largest single block of teaching that Jesus gave us. Our own Bo Martin said when we were preaching through the Beatitudes last fall, if this impossible ideal was, the, was true, then what Jesus was really saying was, blessed are those who don't exist because everything I'm about to say is unattainable. Well, that's not true. How, how are we supposed to approach the Sermon on the Mount? And that's really the question, I, as we're setting up this series, that's the question I want us to ask. What is the Sermon on the Mount? What is its purpose? What, is the, what was Jesus trying to accomplish when he gave this greatest speech? Are we supposed to obey it or are we supposed to realize that we can't ever obey it? Are we supposed to try to live it out or not? Is it supposed to change who we are or what we do or what's the purpose of this speech? What, is, it, is it still relevant for us today? A speech delivered by a homeless Jewish rabbi 2,000 years ago on a mountainside. Okay, 2,000 years later, haven't we progressed beyond some of those things? Aren't we more progressive now? Haven't we learned some new things? How relevant is this 2,000-year-old speech for us? As we're going through Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 over the next few weeks, that's the question that I want us to keep in our minds. And so if you'll if it were, hold Matthew 5, 1 through 12 open on your lap, we're not going to read it until the end of the sermon. We'll do it a little different. Um, but I want to set up the Sermon on the Mount uh, by talking or, or really explaining what it is. And I have two points. What is the Sermon on the Mount? The first one is this. The Sermon on the Mount is God's design for human flourishing. This is God's design for human flourishing. This great speech from Jesus is the creator's plan for the humans that he created. This is what God intended for us. If you look at the first 12 verses of uh, Matthew chapter 5, you see the word blessed a lot over and over. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. What does that word blessed mean? How should we understand the word blessed? Uh, I think the word blessed is best understood in this context as flourishing. Flourishing are the meek. Flourishing are the peacemakers. Flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In this context, the word blessed does not mean if you do this, then you will earn God's favor. That's not what Jesus was teaching. He wasn't saying, oh, if you follow all of the rules that I'm laying out in the Sermon on the Mount, then you will earn God's blessing on your life. Live this way, try really hard, be a great person, and then God will bless you. You'll be blessed. That's not what he was teaching. That's actually a counter the gospel. Jesus came because we could not live up to God's impossible ideal. 
He came to die on the cross as a substitute in your place and in mine so that our relationship with God could be restored because we can't earn God's blessing. So he's not teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. If you do this, then you'll earn God's blessing. That's not what the word blessed means. Nor does the word blessed in this context mean health, wealth, and prosperity for your best materialistic life now. Well, if you, if you just embody these principles, then you'll, have, you'll, have, you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy, you'll be wise, you'll have all the great things in life. That's not what he's teaching. The word blessed means flourishing. It is God's design for human flourishing. This is how God created humans to live. Jesus invented humans. We, we get that? Jesus invented humans. And so Jesus says, look, I invented humans, and this is how I invented them to work. So let's live that way. Let's do that. It's God's design for human flourishing. And I think it's, it's interesting that even non-Christians recognize this. Dr. Jordan Peterson says, The Sermon on the Mount outlines the true nature of man and the proper aim of mankind. Here's a guy who's not a Christian, and yet he recognizes the validity and value of the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's the true nature of humans. And it's the proper aim of humankind. It's God's design for human flourishing. And God's design for human flourishing begins with who you are, not what you do. You notice that the opening section on the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, we preached a whole series on them last fall. They are all focused on who you are, not what you do. They're focused on character, not, not behavior management. See, the Christian life is not about behavior management. It's about character transformation. It's about having the mind of Christ. Uh, I, I recently read a book uh, called The Other Half of Church. And in that book, they were talking about what, it, what is a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple or to have the character or the mind of Christ? What it means is that I subconsciously, automatically, without thinking, react and respond in any given circumstance the way Jesus would. It's just second nature for me to react or respond like Christ. When I respond like Christ without stopping to think about it, then I know that my character is beginning to be transformed into the image of Christ. As long as I have to stop and think about what would Jesus do first and now let me do that, then all I'm doing really is behavior management. Now, that's a process that takes time. When I was uh, younger, I had a, a tendency to embellish stories. When I, when I would tell stories, I would, I would add in details that weren't necessarily true. Some of them were downright false because it made the story better. It made me look better or whatever. And over time, that created a habit of not being truthful. And, uh, and I, I noticed as a young adult that my initial response when somebody would ask me a question, my initial subconscious automatic response was often to not tell the truth. Often. And that bothered me. And, and over time, as God worked in my heart, I noticed that, that I didn't have that automatic reaction anymore. I didn't have that initial response to embellish or lie or stretch the truth. I began to have the initial automatic subconscious response of speaking truth. And I knew that God was transforming my heart. It wasn't anything that I did. It wasn't about behavior management. It was about God changing who I am. Now, I've got a long list of other things that God's still working on. But I could look back at that time in my life and recognize the work of the Holy Spirit in my life transforming my character. 
because behavior is downstream from character. So Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount, not with what you do, but with who you are. Now, there are a whole lot of commands in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Do this, do this, don't do that. But he starts with our character because the goal of the Christian life is not behavior management, it's character transformation. And character is an extension of identity. Jesus is forming our identity in the Sermon on the Mount. So two really important questions that you can ask are, who am I and who are my people? And when it comes to identity, these questions, who am I? Who do I see myself as? Am I a child of God? Am I a musician? Am I a a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant? Am I this? Am I that? Am I a Republican? Am I a Democrat? Am I this or whatever? Like, who am I? What is the identity that I, through which I see myself? And then who are the people that I love and relate to? Because the people we love and relate to have a tremendous influence and impact on our identity and character, right? And so these two questions, who am I? And who are my people will form our character and our identity. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is talking about this. That brings me to my second point. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' vision for the kingdom people of God. This great speech is the Lord's glimpse of a kingdom life for the children of God. Who am am I and who are my people? And Jesus says, look... I am going to paint a picture of who your people are and what kind of people we are as God's children. The Sermon on the Mount is about us, not just about me or you. In, in uh, the United States, we're very hyper-individualistic. But if you look at the opening uh, verses in the Sermon on the Mount, they are all in plural. Blessed are. Blessed are. Blessed are the people who do this. Blessed are those who do this. It's not blessed is the one who does this. It's blessed are the people who do this. The Sermon on the Mount is about us together as the people of God. It's not an individualistic teaching. Now, we have to each personally uh, pursue this. But it's about us together pursuing it together because Jesus here is painting a picture of the children of God who are different from the rest of the world. I have a quote here from a New Testament scholar named John Stott. He wrote this in 1985, almost 40 years ago. And it's a little bit longer quote, but it's worth hanging in there for us. So I've put the text of it up on the screen. You can follow. Think about this in, from 1985 and how relevant it still is today. He says, the followers of Jesus are to be different. Different from both the nominal church and the secular world. Different from both the religious and the irreligious. The Sermon on the Mount is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of Christian counterculture. Too often what today's young people see in the church is not counterculture, but conformism. Not a new society which embodies the ideals of meaning, peace, love, and reality, but another version of the old society which they have renounced. Not life, but death. Insofar as the church is conformed to the world, The church is contradicting its true identity. No comment could be more hurtful to the Christian than the words, but you are no different from anyone else. Wow. 
He wrote that almost 40 years ago. And it's just as true today as it was in 1985. No comment could be more hurtful to the Christian than the words, but you are no different from anyone else. The reality is, if we belong to Jesus, we are different. The Apostle Peter heard Jesus give the Sermon on the Mount, and then later, much later, he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are a people, the people of God, the community of God's kingdom people. We are the children of God. Who am I? I am a child of God. Who are my people? The kingdom people of God. It's who we are, and it's what Jesus is establishing in the Sermon on the Mount. So I want us to read through Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12 together, and we're going to do it a little bit differently. Uh, we're going to, um, I'm going to read a uh, uh, the, the verse, and then I have a response for you. And you, you could put the first one up so everybody could see. So the response is in yellow. I'll read the verse, and then let's read the response together. This is who we are. This is who you are as a child of God. This is who we are as the kingdom people of God. Uh, let's do this. Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We are people who have sinned and should Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God.
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is who we are as the people of God. Let me read from 1 Peter chapter 2 again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Is that true of you? Are you a child of God, part of the kingdom people of God, or are you somebody who has come to church off and on here and there and floated on the fringes? Who are you and who are your people? When you ask that, who are my people, do you think first, my people are my brothers and sisters in Christ? Or do you think my people are my friends at school or my friends at work or my friends out on the golf course? Who are your people? Who am I? Jesus is inviting you into the kingdom community of God's people this morning. He's saying you can be part of my family, my household. You don't have to just come to church on Sundays 1.7 times a month and check off your good Christian box. No, you can actually be part of a people who live this way, who embody the kingdom of God, who, whose lives themselves are a glimpse of what heaven will be like. And the RSVP to Jesus' invitation is communion. We're going to take communion together this morning. The wafers are gluten-free for those of you that have that uh, allergy or intolerance, and the juice is non-alcoholic, so if you struggled with alcohol addiction, you don't have to worry about that. Uh, but this juice and this bread is a symbol of the new covenant that Jesus established between God and humankind. And Jesus said, through my death and resurrection, through this new covenant that I am creating, you don't have to earn God's favor. You can actually live the commands in the Sermon on the Mount only if you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do them, to be this kind of person. Because you can't do what the Sermon on the Mount calls you to do unless you are who the Sermon on the Mount calls you to be. And your heart and character are transformed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus says, I'm establishing this new covenant this kingdom community of God's children, God's people, 
And I'm saying uh, anyone who wants to be part of that covenant is welcome to come. Just simply turn away from your old life and receive a new life in Christ. And uh, as with old uh, ancient covenants, they would always ratify them with a meal together. And that's what this is a symbol of the meal. And by, by eating this bread and drinking this cup, what we're saying is, yes, God, I accept the terms of your covenant. I reject my old way of life, and I am stepping into a new community of your people. My identity is now a child of God, and my people are now the kingdom people, the children of God, the community of his church. That's who I am, and that's who I will be. And by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, my life will create a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven for others as I begin to embody the principles in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you uh, have already accepted God's covenant of grace, then you will take communion as a reaffirmation of your commitment to the Lord. But if that's not something you've ever made, you can make that decision now and then take communion as your first act of accepting the grace and the covenant that Jesus offers. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for uh, sending your son to do what we couldn't do. And yet, Jesus, you taught us in the Sermon on the Mount this beautiful glimpse of what your design for humankind is. As the inventor of humans, as the inventor of life, we look to you to see how it's supposed to work. And the first step is coming to you and giving our lives to you so that you can remake us and retune us and fill us with your spirit to live the way you've called us to live. And Lord, for those of us who have accepted your covenant of grace, we take communion today as a reminder and a renewal of our commitment to you. And if there's anyone in here that hasn't yet made that decision, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak clearly to them, lead them to confess their sin, to ask for mercy, and to surrender their life to you, and then to take communion as an outward uh, action of accepting and receiving Jesus as their king and their savior. In Jesus' name, amen. The bread symbolizes Jesus' body that was broken on the cross. Let's take that bread together. The juice symbolized the blood that Jesus poured out to wash our sins away. Let's take that together. If you decided or made some kind of a decision uh, with Jesus today, whether that's a decision to surrender your life to him or whether that's something else the Holy Spirit nudged in your heart and you decided to step out in obedience, would you just share that with somebody in your church family? It could be me, it could be Pastor Josh, it could be Stephanie, uh, it could be uh, Jesse or Joe. 
Or it could be somebody that you know sitting next to you. Just share that with somebody and let the Holy Spirit work that out together as the people of God.